We are continuing our series on the greatest thing. When Jesus asked what was the greatest commandment, Jesus responded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Love was the greatest commandment, and so we titled this series, The Greatest Thing. Um, When I think about love, I think about it in such a way that it has a complexity and depth to it. And I think about that because actually Ephesians 3 tells us that. It says, may you have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love surpasses all knowledge. So there is a depth, there is a breadth, there is a height, there is a, uh, a lowness. There is so unbelievably vast that it, is, it, it takes a lot to be able to describe it. In the first service, I said that it was complex to love. And my first grade daughter picked up my wife's phone and texted me and said, no, it's not, it is simple to love which is true, it is. Because even though there's a depth to understanding love, you can, even a child can identify when it's real and when it's not, am I right? Absolutely, you can identify it in that way. My television father, uh, Mr. Rogers, from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, said it this way. He said, I feel so strongly that deep and simple is far more essential than shallow and complex. And love is deep and it is simple. And so I think that the description of the passage that we are reading, when we read through through 1 Corinthians 13, it is unbelievably deep. And it explains it to us In such a way where it says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. When it describes those things, it reads off like it's ingredients to a cake, right? Maybe you don't think that way, but I hope that you'll understand what I'm saying. You see, when you make a cake, there are things that you put in a cake. A cake requires flour to put in it. And flour by itself is not that great, but, but flour is something that you can eat, but it will not necessarily be something that's nutritious and you want to come back to and eat often by itself. But then you put baking powder in it, you put baking soda in it, you put a little bit of butter in it, you put some eggs in it, and you put some other things in it. I honestly don't know how to make a cake, but I know that you put some of those things in it. And, and it's still not a cake necessarily, it's just the ingredients. However, when you begin to stir those things up, it changes in its consistency, am I right? And if you're a good baker and you know what you're doing, you can taste it just a little bit, and you can tell that it's changed and transformed. It's a little sweet and it's about ready. But a cake does not become a cake until you put it in a pan and test it by the fire. When it's put in a situation that other things will be destroyed, a cake rises up and puts off an aroma that other people from around the house that do not know how to bake a cake will smell. And they will begin to crave part of that cake. 
And that aroma, when you pull it out of the oven and you let it cool and you decorate it in such a way that it's appealing, it becomes something that you can share amongst others in celebration and enjoyment. The same thing with love. Love should help us be tested by the fire and when all other things become burnt and become stale and dry up, a cake or love in our lives when we face those same circumstances rises up and puts off this aroma that other people will enjoy and desire. And so I think when Paul writes this down, he gives us ingredients for the cake, but he also says, hey, there's some people trying to make counterfeit cakes and call it love, but yet it's putting things in that shouldn't be in it. You cannot replace sugar with salt. I know, I used to work in youth ministry, and it is disgusting even if every other ingredient is right, if you put salt in it, it will make that cake gross. And simply you will know it's wrong. It's crazy to me that youth ministry thinks that this is a way to bring people to Christ. And it actually does, believe it or not. So you will take a bite into that cake knowing it's gonna gross you out for their reactions so they can see that that's not something that's appealing. So Paul puts these ingredients also in his description of love. When he says, love is not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Which brings us to our two topics today. Our two topics today come from 1 Corinthians 13, verse five. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And our two today are, it is not rude and it is not self-serving. It is not rude and it is not self-serving. The first one we're gonna look at is rudeness. It is not rude. Now, Many dictionaries describe rudeness and explain rudeness as offensively impolite or ill-mannered, which is true. But the way scripture uses that rude, if you look at the definition in the Greek, it actually says something that's much deeper and far more dangerous. It means to behave dishonorably or disgracefully towards someone else. To behave dishonorably or disgracefully to someone else. That word dishonorably should shake you just a little bit. And you wonder why, it's because we were created and every individual was created in such a way that people should honor you because that's God's purpose for you in your life. No matter what people have told you, no matter what people have said about you, no matter the way you've been treated, you deserve and you should be treated with honor regardless of your background, regardless of your experiences, regardless of where you grew up, regardless of your social status, you should be treated with honor because that was God's intention when he created you, which was by no mistake. It was by no mistake. And if you need to hear that, you need to know that God loves you and he desires for you to be who you are. But the problem is when we dishonor that 
person that was created intentionally by God. Early on in the story of Genesis, we see this in people. You gotta understand that Genesis was written to a people group, the Hebrews, who are wandering in the wilderness. They're approaching Sinai. They see this great cloud of smoke and fire on there. Uh, God has revealed himself in a cloud of smoke and in a cloud of fire or a pillar of fire to be able to protect them and guide them along the way through the wilderness. He had just separated the sea so that they could walk across on dry ground and the Egyptians would be covered up and buried under the sea. And prior to that, he gave these 10 plagues in the, uh, in the uh, city, in the area of Egypt, so that the most powerful kingdom on earth would release and let God's people go. And these people that are walking through the uh, wilderness, they're wondering, who is this God and why does he care about us? And Moses begins to pen these words that are repeated and read to the people that God created the heavens and earth. And he did not create man first. There was a problem first. The earth was formless and it was void. God had to fix that first. So he began forming the earth. And he did this by speaking it into existence. Let there be light. Let there be stars. Let there be dry ground. Let there be um, uh, clouds in the sky and uh, waters on the earth. You know, there was all these things to form it. And after he began, was done forming it, then he began to fill it. Let there be trees. Let there be animals in the ocean. Let there be uh, birds and beasts of the field. And after he filled it and he fixed the problem... He doesn't speak into existence, mankind. Everything else was created by him speaking it into existence. Instead, what he does is this. He speaks to himself. In the context where he says, let us make man in our image. And I believe, based off of what we understand now, we can look at that phrasing, when we look at the way that man was created, based off of what's written in John, what's written in Colossians and elsewhere in Scripture, that you had the Father's will to make man. You had the Son's uh, uh, ability, or the Son's power, actually created man out of the earth with care and gentleness. Then you had the Holy Spirit breathing life into man, and the triune God created man to Reflect the image of God. And man was placed in the garden with care and intentionality. The idea is that man was created to reflect God's image. And if he's supposed to reflect God's image, man and woman, as they were created and there be fruitful and multiply, the people that they multiplied were also created to reflect the image of God. So if you happen to be rude to that image, then you happen to dishonor the reflection of what God created for that person to reflect because not one of us can reflect all of God's glory. We need a community of people, we need a unity of people to reflect because God is so vast and so big that all of us reflect it. It was not a mistake. So not only are you dishonoring the reflection of God, you are ultimately dishonoring God. By being rude, you are claiming he made a mistake. 
or that person is not living up to that reflection, which might be true, but that is not for you to judge. You see, we were made with purpose and rudeness, a rude response, denies that purpose existed. Now, what we are doing through 1 Corinthians 13 is we're actually looking and seeing why Paul would use these to identify love. Because although love is simple to identify, the church was not reflecting that. And so you go back through 1 Corinthians and you find all these rude passages of how they are rude to one another. And Paul saw this and he began to share the ways that they used to do this. They called, caused divisions within the church by some claiming, hey, I was baptized by Paul and, uh, and others by Apollos and others by Barnabas. And they began fighting and bickering amongst themselves as if there were some that were greater than others. And then later on, they begin arguing about who gets to eat with who and sit by who and what they get to eat. And, and before that, they actually talk about who is faithful as a husband or who is faithful as a wife and who's doing what and who's not living it up. And it's all this bickerness and rudeness and this tattling on one another in such a way that it gets to Paul. Which brings us to 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul actually addresses this. And he recognizes that this is such an issue. He needs to make clear one thing. In 1 Corinthians 9, he begins to share, hey, listen, I have worked in this church that you are a part of. And I worked hard according to the will of the Father to be able to go out and according to the direction of the Son to go out and help plant this church. And I have worked hard, so therefore, since I have worked, it is actually my right to be able to take from some of the gifts and the blessings because a person that works has the right to be able to take some. Much like a farmer that has a field of crops. A farmer that has a field of crops has the right to be able to take some of those crops and put them in his kitchen and eat off of them and take of that blessing. Just like a person who has goats has the right to be able to take from the milk or create other things out of what their farm animals could produce so that they could be blessed by it. But I want you to know this. Because you are so rude to one another and everything seems to be causing division, I took nothing from your church. I took nothing from your church because you're creating divisions within yourself where you cannot hear the unity we have in the gospel. And he ends 1 Corinthians 9, 22 by saying this. To the weak, I became weak. In order to gain the weak, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I may save some. I do these things because of the gospel so that I can be a participant in it. You see, rudeness prevents people from being able to experience the blessings of what God has done. It creates an unsafe place to be able to recognize what God's done and partake in it. It's interesting how Jesus talked about this. If anybody in scripture experienced rudeness that's beyond comprehension, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is God's son. He is the rightful heir of all the kingdom and everything that's created. Yet when he was on earth, he was received with rudeness. They claimed that his healings were by Beelzebul, even though they were healings to Israelite people. 
so that they could go and worship the Lord in the temple. But yet, the leaders claimed it was by Beelzebul, not by God in heaven. And then, as he is walking with this cross, as he is being flogged, as he is being experiencing this unbelievable harm, uh, preparing for the crucifixion, people mocked him to his face as they were beating him. No one has, is a greater authority on how devastating rudeness is than Jesus Christ. Yet Jesus Christ says something very interesting in Matthew 18. When he begins to compare how we should receive people instead of through rude behavior by comparing it to children. They are questioning him at this time. They're questioning Jesus. And Jesus actually says this. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will not receive the kingdom of heaven. Well, what are the little children doing? They are not testing Jesus. They are not questioning Jesus. They are not accusing Jesus. They're running to Jesus and receiving them. And Jesus says, just like this. It's very important. And later on, you find out when he talks about these children, he's talking about people that want to believe in him, that want to find him. He's comparing them to our church people. And he goes on to say this, it builds up. He said, actually, if you cause one of these to fall away, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. And in fact, what's Jesus' attitude to these people? Well, it's like a sheep that is lost. Even though I have 99 sheep or 100 sheep, if one gets lost, I will leave and go find them. And he says, you should do that too. Instead of being rude and accusing them and mocking them as they leave, actually what you need to do if someone were to offend you, you need to go and first be reconciled with them alone. And if that doesn't work, go back and find some like-minded people there to be a witness to you and go and reconcile. And if that doesn't work, go get some elders and continue to pursue that person. Now, in the very next chapter, after Jesus explains how important it is to receive people that are coming freely to Jesus, some children begin to come up with their parents to be blessed by him. And because the disciples are such good listeners, they begin to accuse the parents and say, no, no, this is not the right place or the right time. You are not need to be here in a very rude way. And Jesus says gently to them, let the children come to me and be blessed. You see, we are supposed to respond like that if someone desires the Lord. Rudeness is actually a secondary emotion. It's not a primary emotion. Typically, it's hurt people that end up hurting people. So it's usually because of a misbelief of something that's happened in their life, that they would respond in such a rude manner. This is something that you might not know, but I can tell how hurt some of you are based off of my first interactions with you. The first time I meet many people, if they are uh, defensive or they are, have their guard up or, or, or they're dismissive or abrasive in their responses to me, I, I can tell you, you had an experience possibly in a church that was not one that was kind to you, that didn't experience love. And I know it's not your intention to be rude, but it's up to me to do what Jesus has instructed one of the problems with rudeness, though, is that rudeness has fans. 
People will cheer you on and tell you you did the right thing when you were rude to others. If you are divisive, instead of unifying, instead of loving. It has people that will actually agree with you and push you to go further and will stand by you. So rudeness doesn't make you alone. Rudeness just separates you from the one that desires you to be reconciled. So what's the solution to rudeness? You might think it's politeness in scripture, but it's not. In scripture, it's actually gentleness. We are supposed to respond gently. Many people have defined gentleness as strength under control. It's not weakness, because weakness is just weakness. But gentleness is the idea of, of a father or a mother picking up an infant child and caressing the head and holding them, not shaking him violently, but caring for them the same way that God cared for man when he placed him in the garden and breathed life into him. Bedag actually says this, do not be overly impressed with one's own self-importance and you will be gentle. Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit, by the way. In Ephesians 4, it says this, it says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing one another in love. Proverbs 15 says this, a gentle response turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. As Paul is discipling Timothy, he actually says this in 2 Timothy, he says, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth. So the question is, is how can we have a gentle response? If we have a tendency to be rude in nature, how can we develop that gentle response? And if I'm gonna confess something to you today, I am not naturally gentle. This is one I have to work on myself. And so these are things that I have to understand and practice myself. So I am giving you my own a way of trying to respond gently. Number one, is you need to be prepared before the moment comes. Prepare yourself to respond gently. If you have a tendency to be rude in response to other people because of some disbelief or something they might believe, you need prepared to be able to respond gently. I actually told Liberto just a little while ago, I actually have to think before I come to church, when people come to me, uh, I always want to have a quick answer. And I have to tell myself before I come into church, okay, make sure you ask a question first. Make sure you ask a question first. Make sure you ask a question first. Because I want to be able to share what I know, not receive where people are. You need to be prepared like musicians. Musicians practice before they come up here and lead us in worship. They don't just come up here and say, oh, that, oh, <laughs> that actually worked today. <laughs> Look at that. Be prepared. Number two, take time. Take time. Take a step back and breathe. What's interesting about scripture is it refers to taking a breath as being from the spirit. Breathe. You're not on a shot clock. You don't have to have the quickest response. You don't need to be able to fix things. And sometimes if you take a step back and you think about being prepared and what you have prepared, sometimes the best response is, really, you think that? Why do you think that? 
It's a great response that gives you time to actually listen and care for the other person. Another one's tone, your tone. Sometimes you say the right things, but you say it in the wrong way. You can, you can test this by doing the thank you test. You can practice this yourself. You ever heard of the thank you test? You can say the exact same words, thank you, in many different ways, but it comes off different. I'll demonstrate it for you. There's contempt, thank you. There's sarcasm, thank you. I'm not a good actor. There's uh, annoyance, thank you. And then there's sincerity, thank you. The words do not change, and although your heart might be right, it will come off as something that's wrong. Tone is one of the biggest areas that I think we can change. And taking that breath and taking that step back, whenever we tend to respond rudely, yet respond in a way that's gentle, will allow space for God to work. Sometimes we're too busy responding where God cannot work on the heart of you and the other person. You see, love is not rude. It's gentle. The next one is self-serving. Love is not self-serving. We won't spend as much time in self-serving, but self-serving is having concern for one's own welfare and interest before the welfare and interest of someone else. It's actually a form of idolatry. Anytime you place the creation in front of the creator, you are creating an idol in your life. The odd thing about being self-serving is that many people do this because they think it's good for them. But the truth is, is that a self-serving attitude will actually end up doing you harm, and here's the surprise, and harm to those that you love the most. It will do you harm and harm to those that you love the most. You see, because a self-serving attitude is one of internal misbelief. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, when Paul addresses this right here, he says, everything is lawful, but not everything's beneficial. Everything is lawful, but not everything builds others up. So do not seek your own good, but the good of the other person. And then he goes on to say, I do not seek my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. The problem with self-serving is it causes people to look for you for the answers instead of God, which is leading them down the wrong road. You see, I, I mentioned that it can hurt those that you love the most, and we understand this through Daniel 6, where the king was actually, uh, he was actually tricked into making a law. But the people that were in opposition to Daniel, they made a law because by going to the king's self-serving attitude and feeding it just a little more. They said, why don't you make a law where for seven days people will worship only you. If they worship anybody else, they're thrown into the lion's den. Well, this law put into place, he said it was a great idea. 
I love that idea. It feeds me. It won't harm anybody else. They'll remember me and, all the grateful, and they'll be grateful for what I have done. But his most trusted advisor, the person he needed the most to help him lead the kingdom, ended up being thrown in the lion's den because of this. And he was devastated by it. Because a self-serving attitude, even if you think it will not harm other people, it can harm those that you love the most. But what does, what's the answer for self-serving attitude? It's actually fairly simple. It's God-serving, God-centered attitude. So what does a God-centered attitude look like? We learned this from Genesis 39. There's a man named Joseph who's in Egypt and he was thrown into slavery. Joseph raises up in Potiphar's house and he actually becomes head of the house. Potiphar trusts Joseph that he gives him complete control over all the things in the house. Now, Potiphar's not around very often and his wife, she begins to seduce Joseph. And Joseph's response to her seduction, trying to take him, is one of God-centeredness, not self-preservation. He does not say, hey, we can't do this because if we do and I get caught, they will cut off my head. He doesn't say anything like that. He does not say, um, you know what, I'm not really that into you right now. Uh, I'm going to actually leave and uh, I'm sure there's somebody else out there for you. No, what he says is incredibly God-centered. How could I do such a thing and sin against God? And the very thing he says actually demonstrates love to Potiphar for his household. But just because you are God-centered doesn't mean you will not experience hardship. But we need to pursue God-centered life. So how do you become God-centered? Number one, you need to pick up your cross like Jesus said and follow him. Pick up your cross and follow him. I am convinced we don't have enough Christians out there that are picking up their cross and following Jesus. Instead, I think we have an overwhelming amount of Christians that would rather pick up their sword in the garden and cut out the ear of the opposition. But even if you tend to be like that, Jesus showed that he can heal that by picking up the ear and putting it back on the soldier's head as if it had never been done. Picking up your cross and following Jesus is gonna leave you as a target. But you will experience more joy because you are fulfilling the purpose of why God created you. Number two, this is more practical. Don't refer to yourself whenever anyone shares anything. I, I, sometimes our tendency, whenever someone does something great, like, I don't know, goes on a vacation that into a place you wanted to go, your response is, oh, that's so great. I wish I could do that. You threw yourself in there. I've never been able to go on a vacation like that. You're so lucky. I've never been able to have pretty skin like you. You have such great skin. I'm jealous. You keep throwing yourself in there as if the whole point of that story is for you to receive validation and honor. 
But the truth is you're trying to give it to someone else. Don't put yourself into every conversation. Salesmen know this, by the way. They created a sales tactic where they actually said it's more important for you to be interested in the other person instead of interesting. Because they recognize when you show interest in your client, you actually sell more than if you begin to try to be interesting to them. They also learned that even though you're interesting, you won't remain interesting to them, you'll become annoying. Don't inject yourself into every conversation when someone is sharing something. The last one, forgive other people and forgive yourself. Forgiveness is one of the most selfless, God-centered acts that we can ever experience. No one has ever demonstrated selflessness like Jesus did on the cross. And we are called to do that as well, to forgive other people. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Jesus demonstrated incredible gentleness on the cross by begging his father and praying and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he demonstrated God-centeredness when he bore our sins on the cross because it was the will of the Father. And for us to focus on him in worship, for us to turn to him, we need to remember also what he's done for us. And that's why when we go to take the Lord's Supper, we remember his death until he comes again by reciting what we believe. God, we remember your incredible sacrifice. We're so grateful that you showed incredible gentleness and demonstrated what it's like to be completely centered on God's will. Father, I pray for each of us today that we would live a life where we're, if we tend to respond rudely to others, that we would hesitate and allow you to give us that spirit of gentleness. And Lord, as we 
have a tendency sometimes to respond selfishly and self-centeredly. Lord, that you would help us recognize your will and how to give true hope, not in us, but to you for others. Lord, guide us as we follow you this day. Amen.